Radio for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Welcome to another episode of Agile FM. Uh, today I have a interesting topic. I think this is the first time in I don't know how many episodes that we're actually covering a topic called data analytics and I have a guest with me uh, his name is Jim Sammons and he's a professional scrum trainer uh, he lives in Columbus Ohio and um, we want to touch on this topic and we're also trying to talk a little bit about visualization in general but first and foremost welcome to the podcast Jim thank you thank you so much for having me uh, happy to be here and I'm an avid listener so it's great to be on this side of the microphone awesome okay so let's get this uh, going. Um, we want to talk a little bit about data analytics and there are, this is a kind of a project type. I do encounter um, data analytics projects here and there and uh, the most common questions I always get is like does this thing agile really work for data analytics projects and maybe we do need to step back and possibly define what data analytics projects are and what makes them so so possibly different. Yeah. Uh, it- that's a great question, and I've gotten that that's that same question as, hey, you know, we have this group in our organization, data and analytics, or business intelligence and analytics. You know, it goes by many different names. Can Agile work there? And my gut immediate response is, of course it can, uh, because I believe in, you know, the core underlying fundamentals of agility. So, mm-hmm. of, of course, it can work. We might have to adapt, uh, you know what it looks like mechanically. But I think to define data and analytics is, you know, we're inundated with data in the world. You know, everything around us is constantly collecting data from traffic lights to the Apple Watch to, you know, beacons and stores and Bluetooth and everything. And we just see more and more businesses using it to do predictive, uh, you know, product delivery and and validation of what customers want and customer behaviors and all that. So I think anytime we can use data to inform our decision making, it's going to be good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I kind of look at data and data and analytics as this broad domain. Um, And I've just kind of been lucky to be able to work with a number of teams that have asked me to help them with this area. I'm by no means an expert in in data. Uh, I don't have a, a data background, mm-hmm. but I'd uh, love to get into the topic and tell you some of the things I've been asked to do. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about it. I mean, some of those things um, I got approached uh, in the past, and, and maybe you, you you share those kind of uh, uh, questions you got was um, we're not really a cross-functional team, or we're not really a um, a team that you know has a necessarily an increment coming out of uh, out of, of out of a sprint. So, um, is that something you heard, or something different, or in addition? Yeah, I mean, those are two big uh, kind of concerns people have. Is you know a team of whether let, let's just say let's just pick one thing. You know, report writers or or data visualization. You know, they're like that's our whole team. That's our skill. We mm-hmm. we get all this work thrown to us and it's all very very similar and there's very little true development in their mind uh and it's just getting control of the intake and working through through a backlog of requests um and then on the flip side uh you know i work with some data scientists Mm -hmm. uh in the last couple years in two different engagements 
And, you know, their work, they're like, well, well, we can never get our work done in a sprint. You know, we might work on a complex neural network that might take six months to generate, or we might be working on a machine learning task. And, you know, they're like, it'll never fit in a sprint. Never, never, never <laughs> happen, never happen. Never can inspect in a dab, can, you know, do it or of an incremental delivery. And without fail, 100% of the time, I've been able to help teams see how those base uh, you know, capabilities are available to them. Mm -hmm. So how, yeah, go ahead. So one of the biggest things is, you know, making their work visible. Uh, I had a client tell me recently that the number one thing I helped them do was to, uh, gain visibility into their intake process. So all the requests that were being given to them throughout the business, uh, and when I made it all big and visible and, and used a number of technical tools and some low fidelity markers and post-its on a wall, they were just overwhelmed by the amount of work they had and the amount of work just sitting in queues. Mm -hmm. um, and we started to apply some critical thinking to, should we be doing all this? Does all of this have value? Uh, we started looking at trends as to saying, you know, who is making these data requests of us and are they well thought out requests because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the what, what i'm seeing in the data world is a lot of these requests have a, a pretty hard uh deadline on them like if you can't get me this answer to this question by next thursday there's no value in it True. um mm -hmm. because you know maybe the market window is is that tight or maybe they have to get an answer to a vendor or a customer or supplier so i i see that some data um requests are very deadline driven Time sensitive. Um, mm -hmm. yep mm. how do how do you um respond i don't know if you have any kind of advice on on those this first scenario just described on an item a, a data analytics team would say this takes weeks which is beyond the the scrum bound the sprint boundaries in scrum right um like have you have yeah. you ever seen teams like break these things down and, and make it manageable yeah so one of the really uh, cool things i was able to do with one client was uh, they had this big this big model that they wanted to create, and they were telling me it was going to take you know probably eight to ten weeks to get this model done. And I said, "What question is this model going to answer? Like, wh wh when the business people sit down and look at your output, what are they going to be doing?" Mm -hmm. And they're like, "Well, they could do a whole bunch of things. This model's going to answer a hundred questions." I'm like, "Right, but what is, you know, what's one of them? What's the most important question it's going to answer?" And that spurned them to go back to the business and say, you know, if you could only have one question answered, what would it be? And they're like, well, we really need to know this answer about this logistics uh, value with our shippers. And, you know, we feel like we're, we're bleeding mm -hmm. uh, money in this one area and we want to use this to validate that. And I said, oh, okay. And so I asked the team, how long would it take you to give them the answer to that question? They're like, well, I can have them the answer to that question by tomorrow <laughs> it's like oh okay can we do that yeah well yeah sure we can do that jim and i'm like okay cool let's do that and we went back to the business and said we you know we clarified so we elicited some requirements and you know we used the 3c model so we had a card we had a conversation we did we confirmed that we mm -hmm. understood the work well 
and they delivered it in just a few days right. and the business was blown away and they're like well you said it would take 10 weeks and like well yeah the, oh, the whole thing the full mm-hmm. model yeah. the full picture will take 10 weeks but we can step into help giving you some data right now and all the data later mm-hmm. and the business was like this is this is earth shattering mm-hmm. now to you and i joe that might seem obvious yes and to many of the listeners it might seem obvious but what I find and what I'm constantly surprised by and have to remind myself by is the things we take for granted can feel game-changing to those who haven't worked in the, in, in this manner, in this mm-hmm. agility manner. Well, there's also, I mean, I, I totally agree, right? But there's also something when you are inside a company and you do work, let's say, on to your example here on that model, you do think it's eight to ten weeks and... Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard when you're like in an organization to ask the right questions, right? That would get you to something like this. So somebody with a, a fresh pair of new eyes, like look on things and ask, you know, sometimes I say a stupid question <laughs> and then uh, all of a sudden these things pop up. It's like, hmm, that actually makes sense. Why don't we do it this way? And there's a different path to it. And sometimes you're just getting blind within an organization. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a good point. And then obviously, um, you know, I would say just for the listeners, right, so obviously not the whole thing was done in, in uh, one to two days, but the rest of the massive item of ten, eight to ten weeks was then broken down into similar little pieces, I would assume, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then they started to see areas of weighing, uh, places to split this work everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that kind of helped re- reinforce some of the things I've been telling them, which is once you get good at figuring out how to deliver incrementally, you're going to see opportunities to do it everywhere, like almost to the point where then it can become a little wasteful to mm-hmm. make things so small. Um, but you know, it really also got the business to the table to start rethinking about how they frame their requests Mm -hmm. instead of just saying, give me a report that shows me this. And it would be like, okay, great. But what question, what business question are you going to use that data to answer? And we found that even if the technical team was good at delivering it in a timely manner, the business wasn't always great at indicating how they were going to use the data. Mm-hmm. Well, it's excellent, it's especially verification of are we going in the right direction here and the team's capabilities. I mean, to that po- point of being like possibly blind because you're doing so many things um, around a specific topic within an organization, that might, the same might actually apply to both of us too because we're doing a lot of scrum work. Um, and uh, let me ask a, a different question here. Have you have you seen Kanban, for example, be uh, being used in these... Um, data analytics project successfully do you think that would be a valid approach maybe a better approach uh yeah i mean i i always hate the or i always try and stay away from the word better but i think it could definitely be more useful in many contexts you know um but it's it's kind of funny you bring that up because this one client in particular when they hired me they said we're hiring a scrum coach and I'm like, what, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, we want you to come in and install Scrum on these three <laughs> teams. Scrum. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, it was really funny because through a period of, uh, of a week or two, I had a number of conversations with people to try and understand how they came to that conclusion. 
And there was some real kind of funny competitive motivations around wanting to do really good scrum with this data uh, and analytics team. And I said, okay, that's great. I, I will help you do that. And I explained to them all the ins and outs of Scrum, what Scrum was, what it wasn't. We did a lot of myth busting. And I said, is this what you want? They said, yes, this is what we want. And we started. And I told them, I said, we're going to do good professional Scrum. You know, I'm, we're not going to start off by, you know, doing bad Scrum. Mm-hmm. And then they immediately hit the wall and were like, wow, there's we have to change a lot of things here. You know, what do you mean we have to have a product owner? And what's the product backlog? And mm-hmm. Uh, all these meetings, as they call them, were, were overhead, you know, so the, the daily scrum was overhead. The sprint review was overhead. So <laughs> they said, maybe we should look at this Kanban thing. Mm-hmm. So then I got to give them my spiel about Kanban. I said, you realize that Kanban's not easier. In fact, many yeah. people would say it's harder to do than scrum, but it's, it's different. They, in my opinion, they focus on slightly different things. And they said, yeah, let's do Kanban. And then I took them out. And remember, this is a data science and analytics team. Mm -hmm. And I showed them actionable agile metrics from Dan Vacanti. And their eyes lit up. And they're like, we have to have this. Mm -hmm. Because this was their language, you know, data, graphs, Monte Carlo simulations, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, service level expectations. So uh, I found that data-oriented teams gravitate towards Kanban because – the vocabulary that is difficult for some scrum practitioners, the metrics, the graphs, the charts, are second nature to them. It's it's considered elementary Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. So they're able to wrap their head around it, and they're able to see the benefit of uh, you know simulating their own workflow, and they're able to see the benefit of measuring cycle time and lead time and mm-hmm. and all that. But they always push back on me on whip. They, they, they all <laughs> yeah. on limiting whip, and I said, you got to limit whip. I mean, mm-hmm. they're like, we have a whip limit of 19? I said, no. You can, <laughs> oh, wow. For this team, you cannot have a whip limit of 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem of um, an 8 to 10 week item wouldn't otherwise go away, right? So you would still run that over your, in this case, a Kanban board. Um, very cool. Do you do you want to go a little bit more in depth on on the on the board, the setup um, of a board, just in case somebody is out there right now listening, thinking about, hey, I have this data analytics project. I might be in a similar um, branch right now to evaluate. Should I do Scrum? Should I do Kanban? Maybe somebody is familiar with Scrum, has heard more about it less uh, than with Kanban, and just a few things to consider uh, for somebody who possibly evaluates this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I would. I would encourage anybody, whether they're a data team or not, um, but especially if you're a data team, since that's a focus of our conversation. That's right. Inspect and adapt to two different frameworks and, and look at how they work, uh, different uh, approaches to many of the same things, and try and figure out which one you're going to start with. But at, at their core, no matter what you choose, visualize your current workflow. And, and don't, you know... Don't be a perfectionist about it. Just throw some painter's tape up on the wall. Create, Visualize your current workflow. Bring the team around to stand and say, is this how we do work? Mm-hmm. And when I get the workflow down, just the columns, then I say, okay, now let's talk about the different types of work we do. 
and where they're like, okay, well, we do reports. We do, do just, you know, disparate reports, one-offs, ad hoc, create me report that shows this. Okay, that's one type of work. Uh, then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, they're doing complex data science work with long models that can take weeks or longer to do. And then there's a whole bunch of things in between. There's like visualization, there's um, mobile apps, mm -hmm. there's charts and graphs and all different ways to slice and dice data. And then we started capturing some work item aging. And that alone was eye-opening to the team. So to me, those are some things to, to, to start with, mm -hmm. is what's our current workflow? What type of work are we doing? And then let's start figuring out how long it takes things to move through our system. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 yeah so yeah. Before, uh, before we talk a little bit about um, like the kind of work that data um, analytics teams uh, typically do, it's like models, et cetera, right? and some findings and you mentioned like one of those examples where somebody was under time pressure and there was a an expiration on on the the model just based on time um how, how would that typically let's just go back to let's say a scrum environment or an organization even if the data analytics is using a kanban for this um how does all that stuff feed back into um the various backlogs within an organization so let's say our data analytics teams goes to work and does all their magic and they come up with these models and calculations and possibly an advice coming out of it. Um, how would that feed into back into the organization? Because these are like huge findings, right? For an organization to see like, well, some of those things are underdeveloped. Some things are just not useful to do anymore. There's, uh, I think what you said was like a waste of uh, uh, funds and money in certain areas of an organization. How would that findings then translate back into the scrum teams? Have you ever seen some form of connect? Because I feel like those data analytics teams are often just on their own island. Yeah. So I, there's two quick kind of uh, real world stories I'll tell. Mm -hmm. One is uh, just to set the groundwork. So Don McGrill and, and Ralph in their book on product ownership, they talk about the three V's and the third V is validation. So I see a lot of the data teams I work with being involved in that validation step. So maybe the business has an idea or a product owner or a product group has an idea of something they want to do, like a big new initiative or a customer segment or, or some new market opportunity they want to go after. And they will tap the data teams first to go validate that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a number of big firms out there uh, in the world that sell data to, you know, the masses. Right. So you can get a lot of data sets, you know, dumped on you. Can get, you can buy billions of rows of data to sift through and hand to your teams to help you answer business questions. So one way I think that data work feeds scrum teams is it helps product owners and other leaders make more informed decisions at the portfolio level. Mm-hmm. So a very early task that comes off like maybe a lean canvas or a business model canvas um, might be this isn't a hypothesis we have mm -hmm. to, to validate that hypothesis of this work item that's on our portfolio level Kanban. Let's go ask the data science team to validate this assumption. Mm -hmm. So that's one way I see it. Uh, another thing that happened in the real world was there was a, a person in my client's company and their job was to manage this one vendor for lack of a better term this one vendor dimension like a like a 
skill. Mm-hmm. And the thought was that the company was wasting a ton of money on this. So they spun up a bunch of work and the goal of the of the data work was to validate how much money was being wasted. And you know, we were lo- the team was telling me it was going to be about 2 to 3 sprints worth of work, so about 4 to 6 weeks to give them this answer. And I said, "Well, what can you tell me right now? Like, what is the the variation in the data?" Mm-hmm. Like, well, based on this, you know, if we exclude the typical, you know, percentages of outliers, there's only like a 0.2% fluctuation in all these values over 100,000 data points. So I said, have you told the business that? Well, no, we haven't told them that. Because the business, I could tell, was assuming that there was wide fluctuations between all the vendors and that mm-hmm. vendors were performant and other ones were not. And I said, what if I told – so I sat down with the business and the team and I said – what if I told you that there was very little data here and it's all within a standard deviation? They said, well, then this isn't valuable. Move on. Let's go have you do other work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the team just looked at me and like, what happened there? And I said, you guys just lived Agile Manifesto principle number 10. And they, they looked at me like, like I had two heads. <laughs> I said, I only know that because, well, it's my job to know things like that, but also because it's my favorite one. That's simplicity. That's maximizing the amount of work not done. We mm-hmm. just saved ourselves two to three sprints worth of effort that the business said, even if we did a phenomenal job, was not going to have any impact. That now gives us time that we can work on other things. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because one of the resistors to agility was like, if I get it now. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I get it. They're like, this is great. But they had not been able to wrap their head around what it means to maximize work we don't do. Yeah. And I said, that's the thing is we're not after increasing your output. We're in, we're after increasing the outcomes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad I, I want to say that, Jim, yeah, that you said, you actually spelled out what the 10th um, principle was because uh, otherwise everybody would have looked it up and says what is the 10th one you know and uh, <laughs> glad, you, glad you spelled it out for everyone um, who would know what the 10th is you're unbelievable um, does, does, just because it's my favorite <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorites too right but um, yep. I do want to um, uh, touch on one thing I think the listeners have picked up on that already and uh, towards our second part of our podcast here I want to touch a little bit on um, a topic everybody sees your passion, even though this is an audio one, we can see, you know, eyes uh, uh, lit up and everything. Uh, when you talk about visualization and tr- uh, transparency, et cetera, um, you are uh, big into visualization. You are in big uh, in charting. We have met one time and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, s- sketching um, techniques, how to make complex content um, visually digestible. Um, it's one of those things mm-hmm. you're very, very um, into it. Um, how did this passion develop? And just, I mean, you're like, it's really ink on paper. I want to make sure that uh, listeners out there see this. This is ink on paper, various kind of products you're using, and you're going straight on paper. This is not a skill we do see day to day in Scrum teams around the world. Uh, lots of those are electronic tools, but you go straight to paper. What's, what's your yeah. passion about this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly recent phenomenon for me. And I got to credit um, Simon Rindel and a number of other excellent mm-hmm. trainers that I took classes from through my, my own learning journey. And I just realized that I hated being in 
a training class and it was just being driven by PowerPoint. Um, I didn't retain things very well. I found myself taking notes and uh, but when I got to experience Simon's class, we did a ton of, of you know, visualizations and drawing and teach backs. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking about graphic facilitation and that got me thinking about training from the back of the room concepts. And I took that back to my employer and I said, we got to totally redo how we train people. And like, I have no background in education, but as a student, um, mm-hmm. I just noticed and felt in myself such a, a different level of retention and engagement. And I said, I want to bring this to all my students and all the employees in my company and all my clients, both past, present and future. And I have no art skills. Like I, I can barely draw straight lines and circles. And, you know, I have to practice a lot mm-hmm. to get legible flip charts and to get notes that are meaningful. But um, there are people out there who are light years ahead of what I would ever do. Um, mm. that, so that's kind of that's where the the hook got set, right? That's where I got interested. Mm-hmm. But then I took a position um, with a consulting firm, and I got to work with a couple UX designers who were sketch noters and were just like they could create these beautiful visualizations, uh, these customer journey maps and and storyboards on the fly with. Uh, you know, in an ideation session that mm-hmm. just drove engagement and understanding through the roof. And I just said, I have to get better at this. So mm-hmm. I'm still on the journey. Like I am by no means an artist. I have some artists in my family and they're, I can't hold a candle to them, but <laughs> I would encourage the listeners to just do a quick Google search for visual vocabulary mm-hmm. and you'll see all these practice sheets for, how to draw an airplane, how to draw a, a mountain, how to draw a stop sign and a star. And most of these shapes that I use are constructed from like five or six different basic shapes. And I, I bought some of the Beaker mm-hmm. Blow books um, that are out there and some of the, the materials from Dan Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those have helped me. But just it's just practicing. It's buying a decent marker or two and some mm-hmm. notebooks. It's practicing making marks making every day mm-hmm. yeah this is awesome uh, mike rody i don't know if you're familiar with him sketchnoter he is uh he was once here on the show as well um mm-hmm. excellent books and he even has a workbook so he has a book about uh, sketchnoting as well as then uh, a practice book right where you can actually do a couple of those uh practice rounds as well now this is actually an advantage of having you like what yourself describe yourself as a beginner level. Although then, uh, what am I? Because I saw your notes and sketch notes in particular, and I'm way behind <laughs> on this one. I, for me to get one poster right, I need an entire flip chart stack, and this is not environmentally fri- friendly, right? But I do uh, know that this is an area for improvement. But when you are in this journey right now of making improvements, do you have any advice for the listeners to the end of our uh, session here? We would say. Uh, beside the vocabulary, is there is there anything beside the practice, the the Google search? We would say that would be the next step uh, to practice or something to prepare for. Uh, would you recommend classes? Have you done classes around this? So I am taking a graphic facilitation class later this year. Um, I would encourage listeners to look into those. Um, mm. I did make a pretty sizable investment in some good markers, and I mean when I say sizable, I mean. Mm. probably a few hundred dollars in yeah. markers but the good you know and, and you don't have to do that you can do these with you know just cheap off-the-shelf markers but um and i just started practicing 
Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's the biggest thing is kind of getting over your own fear of practicing. So I just went to my local hobby store and bought a, a decent notebook where the markers wouldn't bleed through the page. And I just sat there and I would give myself a title like telephone and I would just draw a telephone 10 different ways. And then I would draw one mm-hmm. that was laptop. And I, you know, I tried to have a bias towards practicing things that I used in my classes. Sure. Mm-hmm. And the biggest compliment my students give me is by at the end of the, cl- the two-day class, there's like 25 or 30 flip charts, and they're taking pictures, and people have said, can I take this back to my office? And wow. I've actually had people send me pictures of my, my flip charts hanging over their desk, and I'm like, that's such a huge compliment to me. And it's not because it's good art. It's actually, I think, pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> but it's because it helps them remember. Mm-hmm. It, it It's something, the, the visual... Uh, nature of this graphic facilitation and teaching and learning this way just for whatever reason makes it stick and I'm sure many of your listeners know the brain science better than I do but it just makes it stick in my brain better yeah yeah so um, visual orientation I mean not only for the class but even for uh, project work right so that's it's very helpful and uh, and you know what it's uh, it's it's the prettier posters right the artwork and, and you can tell somebody put the extra effort in in creating it, you can see the difference, right? Uh, and then people relate to the work better. It also, you know, provides a little bit more value around the work you're providing because somebody says, like, "Wow, this is a, it's a lot of preparation." Let's say you walk into a classroom and the posters are pre-prepared uh, in some way to be filled out. It, it just shows a, a, a very high level of uh, value, I would say, um, towards the yeah. students. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I. I use PowerPoint a lot, so mm-hmm. I, I don't want anybody to feel bad if they are a PowerPoint trainer because so, I think PowerPoint is a great mechanism to deliver certain types of content. Mm-hmm. You know, but other types of things are going to be you're going to see higher engagement and retention rates if you try and mix up your training style and don't try and go from nothing to everything. You know, step into it. You know, do say, look at this slide. How could I make this an activity? Mm-hmm. Or this the this concept, how could I draw this? If I was gonna draw this for a group of ten year olds, what what are some visuals I would use? Uh, and then the funny thing is I see a circle back to our earlier topic about data science and data and analytics and mm-hmm. another way it feeds scrum is and, and the data scientists were were big in telling me this is it's not enough to have the data. It's not enough to even create the model. If it's not readable and consumable by the audience, it's worthless. It was mm. a waste of time. Right. And they showed me and told me a number of, and I saw it play out myself, a number of examples of that where the team created in their head a great piece of work product, but the business said this is not usable to me. Like. Uh, I can't. I can't make any correlations from this. Can you show me this in a different way? And they said, "Well, of course we can, but that's more work." Mm-hmm. So, it's just. It was interesting to me as a non, you know, data person mm-hmm. that uh, how impactful just visualizing the work differently could be. So right. maybe. Uh, a tree view versus uh, a bar chart or a stack bar chart or some of these more complex visualizations could have a drastically different uh, impact on the customers that were requesting it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we became full circle here again, right? So visualization back to our reports, to our data analytics team. Um, mm-hmm. 
Jim, this is uh, this was awesome. I think this was a very good conversation. I hope the listeners out there enjoyed uh, our journey from exactly that data analytics to visualization back and forth. Um, but it's also kind of uh, weird to have a, a conversation about visualization on a audio only podcast. Um, so uh, maybe down the road we need to have some artifacts on uh, on the show page on Agile FM, and uh, we do another round. And when you reach the next level in in terms of artwork and where you feel like, hey, let's do this, let me show some examples from your work. How is that? Yeah, that that would be great. And, and as one you know, kind of one takeaway for your listeners, if if you're an Agilist in a in a company. Mm-hmm. Go seek out your data folks. They can be super helpful in helping you with that validation piece of product ownership. And I'm hearing from the data world as they go to their conferences, you know, all industries have conferences in uh, learning journeys. And agility is a huge topic uh, in the data science and data analytics oh, and business intelligence mm-hmm. world. So I see a lot of uh, bridge building in people's futures, and, mm-hmm. and there's very good um, synergies for people to work together. Excellent. Let's do that, Jim. And uh, thank you so much. And uh, all the contact information about you, Jim, is going to be on the show page on Agile FM. Links um, and a little bit more explanation, and uh, maybe I'll put some links out to some of those search results you were commenting before on this show. Okay, great. Hey, thank you so much, Jim. Talk to you next time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.